Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome to Heard Tell. All right, he's back. He's one of our favorites. Peter Pisky's back with us. He's a reporter. He's a great journalist, good friend of the program. How are you, sir? Great to have you back. Howdy, howdy. Great to be here again. I'm doing well. Great. I uh, I love having you for culture stuff because I'm pretty upfront. There's a lot of this stuff I just don't understand. It's not my thing. It's kind of a foreign language to me. So I'm glad you're here to explain it to me. Let's start with a big ticket item that kind of got on everybody's radar this week, and then we're going to get into some other stuff because it does touch on gaming culture and news media and how it crosses over uh for folks that don't know there's a new harry potter game out hogwarts legacy there's been a lot of press about it it's very very popular it's selling really well it's rated really highly but anything with harry potter people get into the jk rawlings things they get into the controversies with some of her personal opinions even though she doesn't really have anything to do with the game other than creating this world and these characters just for folks that don't know, kind of explain it for a minute, because this is one of those things where there was trying to be a backlash on it, but the thing's so popular, the backlash doesn't really seem to work. Or as one gaming journalist wrote, this is going to be a referendum on J.K. Rollins. Well, the referendum is people just want to play the game, it looks like. <laughs> no, and that's correct. There's a, It's a good news, bad news situation. Uh, the good news is the game is excellent. So Hogwarts Legacy is the seven-year endeavor by... Avalanche Software, uh, on behalf of their publisher, Warner Brothers, of course, who owns the license to Harry Potter. And uh, this is basically, you get to live the fantasy that you kind of wanted when you were a kid, when you read those books. Um, it's I was playing the game just last night. It's pretty good. People are pretty happy with it. I would say it's around an 8 or 9 out of 10. That's where most people are scoring it. Um, there has been some backlash, not because of anything the game has done or really the game developers, but because of JK Rowling's comments on transgender issues, you know, the stuff with the uh, women's shelters and bathrooms, um, many people, particularly on the left. And so that includes a lot of people in media say that she's a turf, which is trans exclusionary radical feminist. I don't know how accurate that is, to be honest, but that's how people label her. And so this idea popped up and it became part of the mainstream was that if you bought this game, that somehow those dollars would then go to J.K. Rowling and then she would use those dollars to hurt trans people. Now, all of this, if you think about it, is silly because she makes more money selling bookmarks for Barnes and Nobles and Walmart. I mean, then she gets for any game. I mean, she's she's a billionaire. She's one of the richest people on the planet. So. The game sells, the game doesn't sell. That doesn't affect J.K. Rowling all that much. Um, I think the good news here is that it used to be with media, particularly from uh, gaming journalism, 
that if they really hated something, they could gang together and they could try to kill it. And there were many cases of that, especially prior to 2016. Um, but what we're learning now is that despite all the hate in the media, despite so many people telling you, if you play this game, you're a very bad person, it hasn't worked. The game is um, outselling records. It's outpacing even the best expectations for it. It had uh, yesterday over 1.2 million people on Twitch streaming the game. So that's people who are playing and then other people are watching them. And that doesn't include everyone that's just, you know, playing the game right now. So it's a mega super success. It's a great game. It's really nice to see uh, that it is doing so well. It is a little sad that the juice that the gaming press used to have doesn't seem to be there anymore. But in this case, they were choosing to use it for uh, in a wrong way. Yeah, Peter Pisky joining us. We need to explain something here, though. Our My friend uh, Jay Bird over at Ordinary Times wrote this up when this kind of broke out at the end of last week and over the weekend. He pointed this out, and I want you to explain it to folks that aren't real familiar with how gaming works, especially business gaming like Twitch, like streaming, like writing about video games, covering video games. That's a specific niche business model now, and Jay really laid this out good. He's like, what happened here was the big-time streamers got the game early, and this backlash really started because everybody started dogpiling the gamers that got it early of, why are you playing this game early? Because that was just a handful of people. But then as soon as everybody had access to it, everybody started playing it. It sure looks like this was one of those things where it was everybody kind of want to project that. Look, if you got a problem with J.K. Rollins, I have no problem with you boycotting the game. It's your money. You're allowed to protest whatever you want. Fine and dandy. But we got a little bit of data here, and I think Jay was right to point it out this way. They just jumped on the early folks, but then as soon as everybody else got it, everybody else was just playing it anyway, too. It does look like this was a little bit of the online didn't actually match what people were actually doing once they could just settle in and play the game. Feels like a lot of projection going on here. Definitely. It is It is sad how often the reality of what actually happens with gamers, what they want to play, what the discourse is, doesn't match what is being pushed in the press or you see on social media from uh, big or verified outlets. That is actually a very common thing, but it doesn't get talked about all that much because to point it out, it says the people that are in charge or the, that are the official voices for these things maybe aren't representing the, the player base like they should. I, I think it, this is, of course, it's an issue of the Streisand effect. With Jonah Goldberg coined the terms when Streisand didn't want people to be able to see her summer house on the coast. And then just talking about how they weren't allowed to talk about it made more people interested. Um, I would also uh, say that people do not like being told what they can't do. And when they had with those initial influencers, when we had people, you know, these activists that say they're trans activists, and they would go onto Twitch and they would start saying really ugly comments encouraging others to do so there's a particular twitch stream that went viral you can find youtube where the guy this guy is gaming with his girlfriend and she was just checking the comments and she has to leave the room crying because it got so vicious people really hate that they they don't like you know being so controlled especially when it's something that is pretty up in the air is this really going to hurt trans people or not and having everyone decide for you people hate that which I like, I like to see that. I like to see that people still have open minds and are willing to decide for themselves. Uh, but it is sad that it was even necessary in the first place. Yeah, this leads to something we've been talking about a little bit. Peter Pischke joining us. Gaming culture is its own 
thing. I don't think it's fair to call it niche anymore because it's really big business. So I think niche or things, I think that's almost downplaying what it is. Gaming culture, the business of gaming. Look, video games is integrated in everything because every movie has a video game. Shows have video games. It's anymore. It's its own entertainment sector, for lack of a better term, right? It's like movies. It's on that level almost. But the media coverage of it, there's two sides to this. When the mainstream media gets a hold of something like the Hogwarts thing, like the G4 thing we're going to talk about in a little bit, pick whatever. There's been a couple examples. They don't really know how to cover it other than inside of their own templates. And you're a journalist. You know how that works. And then the other side of it is, is the folks that are inside of that bubble don't always communicate or present to the outside world their best foot forward because they're used to being inside of that world. Is that a fair way to put it? Because I don't think we're getting good media coverage when something like this happens from either side. I would agree for the most part. Uh, there, there are several issues really why that is. For one, the mainstream press are full of people that don't they don't really consider gaming as a big part of their lives. It's not something they think a lot about. That's probably because the mainstream press versus the gaming press, there is a bit of a, a median age difference there. Uh, mainstream press is probably people who are older. They come maybe from a more upper class background. And no offense to them. Um, I think the other issue is that even though gaming is huge, I mean, it's there. there's many more dollars being sold every year for video games than movies, television, books, etc. But the coverage of it is pretty niche. I, there are a couple of reasons why that might be besides like the gaming press is very political. They're kind of they have an activist mentality. Um, this ter the gaming is not a niche uh, culture, but there are many niche terms in it. And so that's very focused on a smaller audience. And you can see even when there is success, when the, the gaming press crosses over and does well in the mainstream, they, they usually aren't allowed to be there all that long. We just had the Washington Post, which closed Launcher, which in the world of the gaming media was actually a very successful venture. But they're just to the Washington Post and Bezos. They just didn't seem to be enough money there. So they let go. And we are, of course, seeing firings in gaming media across the board, even as games are selling better than ever. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Peter Pitsky, again, this is a little bit of a culture thing for folks that aren't familiar with it, but this ties into the G4, and we'll get into your interview with Frost here in a minute, but G4 came back and disappeared. It was a channel about video gaming. Part of the problem with the press of video games is kind of, it's almost like YouTube on steroids, the way Twitch works, the way streaming works. Every you, We want to talk about everybody becoming their own journalist. Everybody really is their own gamer here. 
it's really hard to get a business model where just about anybody can tap into the money stream themselves. Some of this feels like there's an evolution in the business models and the coverages and trying to set these things up in the gaming world or in the gaming press to be specific under the old rules of how you would do, you know, like a newspaper or a network TV system. It's not just going to match up because these folks are streaming in real time. They're putting out information in real time. There's no delay. It's very immediate. That's just a totally different world that I'm not sure corporate media has fully enveloped. But we now have a whole generation of gamers. That's their natural ecosystem. Is that part of the problem with the business model and all this right now? That is definitely a large factor of it. I think we're, maybe you don't see that the big corporate networks so like NBC, ABC, CBS, um, the big newspapers. But I think for most smaller journalists, people who are independent, who work on medium to small outlets, they realize that they are no longer competing against other reporters, journalists, and you know, uh, writers. They are competing against everyone else that wants your attention. And when it comes to news coverage, it's not just you and the other news guys. You're also going against people who are on YouTube, people who are on the social media, so like Twitter or Facebook. Um, you know, uh, there are even smaller platforms, which in their own ways get used similarly. You know, they have platforms. Oh, I mean, it's actually pretty big, but to people who are aware of it, Discord is another one. I think gaming, it's to that, but to the 1000th degree, because gaming media, the people who are in charge of it, were so kind of bent not positively towards their audience that they led an opening and so you have all these people who are on youtube all these people who are on twitch and they can command you know some of these guys millions of people at a time and that model is out competing the typical uh video game news model and so we're seeing a lot of change there it is really interesting because you have all this money games bigger than ever and the game press seems to be shrinking but the youtubers who cover gaming uh, they are doing just fine. Yeah, Peter Pitsky joining us. He's also the uh, host of wonderful CultureScape podcast. You got a lot of attention and you got some of that game press attention with your interview with Frost. The G4 thing I just mentioned, again, just kind of give the background here before we get into that. Why? Because this goes to a lot of this. They brought back G4 and it didn't work. Again, it failed pretty quickly. And the whole thing with that, and you give the full background on this, things changed. It wasn't a great model to start with. And then the things that had happened since then made it even more tough. And then that gets into the interview and the controversies because it, a lot of that goes to some very core things. Who is your audience? What's your responsibility to your audience? How do you understand your audience? What does the audience owe you and what do you owe your audience when it's a shifting landscape, culturescape, not to use a pun on term, that's that's shifting under their feet as they're doing it and it, the company's failing and people are getting flack that's just a lot of really cross streams to all these core issues we just talked about and this is kind of a good example of it isn't it it is we're seeing huge changes in media even in my short time i've been in the the business uh we've seen just huge fluctuations for how the work is uh looked at how you move in your career, what are the expectations for your audience? And I would say for the most part, those are for the positive. But when it comes to making a livelihood, making money in news media, it is very difficult often. Uh, the story of G4 TV is some of you may remember back in the 2000s, there was this video game channel. It really had only two good shows for the most part. And then it would put on like reruns of cops 
and cheaters for like 12 hours a day. Um, that was G4 TV. It did very well though for, for what it was. It got closed down. It really was pretty much winded down by 2009, but it was officially closed 2011. Well, the Comcast, you know, the giant billion dollar media company, they decided they would bring it back and they put it, they brought it back under their subsidiary Comcast Spectacor, which was run by the CEO of Comcast's son, Tucker Roberts. And so they decided they were going to bring back the G4 TV brand, but this time they would try to update it for the modern communication standards. So of course, places like YouTube and Twitch, but also they try to focus on linear. Uh, and this ended up being a just a fantastic screw up all the way around. Uh, when they brought this back, there are several things that went wrong besides the fact that they decided they would have like seven different verticals they're focusing on. So they, it wasn't just for YouTube, it wasn't just for Twitch, wasn't just for satellite or cable. It wasn't just for Roku. And I'm trying to think of the last one. They had, you know, by the end of it, seven different verticals, which means you have a team. So you have a team of eight, eight people, and they're supposed to make content for one of those verticals, say YouTube. They would expect them to make about 15 hours of content for a week. Now, times that by eight, and you can see the problem there. The other problem was G4 TV, Comcast really never understood their audience. And so when they brought back this brand, they tried to act as if nothing had happened and they didn't really recognize where the games media were, where people were now, and they just weren't able to gain traction. So it's hard to tell totally whose idea it was, but last year, January, just a few months after they brought this back, uh, one of their hosts, Indiana Frosker and Black, who had previously before uh, G4 TV was a fairly popular uh, sportscaster for League of Legends, which is an esports game. And she decided to give this rant and it was interpreted as sexism in gaming and folk and that the target audience was everyone in gaming so this goes out it's like three to five minutes and the gaming media they grab it uh, i'm glad i talked about them a little earlier here because it gives you a sense of the animosity the, in the relationship between the gaming media and gamers and so the gaming media took this rant and they didn't say it was just uh, frost has issues with people who are uh, attacking her at work or in her youtube comments no, they said, Frost, This is she is saying this about all the gamers, and she should. All of you people are terrible. You're sexist trolls. We hate all of you. And so that's how this was interpreted. And, of course, people pushed back very hard and fast. Now, first, everything seemed positive. You know, when Frost had the gaming media and when they were interested, in, it looked like maybe she'd win that PR war. But they lose interest. But all the haters, all the people, all the beehives that they had, you know, started whacking at, they did not forget and they continued to be mad about it even till now and it was it wasn't really what killed g4 tv like comcast bringing the brand as they did handling it so badly as they did they kind of pushed it next put next to the cliff but it was frocks that kind of pushed it over and to this day people still attack her but the weird thing is i noticed um uh just this last month was during this whole year of you know millions of youtube hits who knows how many uh tweets on twitter all this attacks on frost she had never really said much after that five minutes there's like maybe three tweets she had made in all of last year about this topic about her rant and that seemed weird to me so after a friend uh got to interview one of her coworkers, i decided to try to reach out to her and her agent again and to my surprise they agreed to have frost come on my show and uh, she sat down with me for oh almost four hours. It's a great like two and fifteen minute, two hours and fifteen minute interview. And we get into a lot of that. And it turns out from her side of things, they are much more complicated. 
but the media system in which we live does not like complication. And it really, even though we seem to have more access to media than ever before, I think what people expect are takes that are more simplistic than ever before. And all that really hurt her badly. Peter Pipsky. Look, I don't, I didn't know her at all until basically you started covering it and I went back and read it. So I, I think I'm pretty decently neutral when I watched that interview and I watched it a couple of times and I took it in sections because it's a long interview and we're going to link to it. It's on his culture scape page. Great channel. Make sure you subscribe to that. So I don't know all the particulars. I'm just watching it fairly neutral, right? Yeah. You can tell a lot of anger. Like I got a lot, like, and I'm not talking about reactionary anger. I'm talking simmering. This is stuff that is not one rant or one incident or even one or two years. This is deep-seated stuff. This is deep-seated cultural stuff from the world that she chose to inhabit in the gaming world. This is not stuff that is unique to her. This is stuff we've heard from other places. But that's what I got from her. And aside from what she's saying, and there's a lot of he said, she said in here, and folks can parse that out as they will. I just got a lot of simmering anger at how this situation unfolded and then the reaction to it, which seems kind of disproportionate. Is that kind of a fair way to lay it out without getting into all the, you know, the rights and the wrongs and who did what to who that's just a general impression. I got just listening to it. Yes. I, it, it, people don't like to hear it necessarily because it doesn't please any particular side, but yes, the, the amount of negative attention and vitriol that this woman received was disproportionate to what she actually had done. And it completely ignored the very real and understandable extenuating circumstances that when she explains it and how corrupt Comcast is in running their media companies and all the shenanigans that went on there. While what she said wasn't great and it would be something that I particularly loved. I mean, I, I wrote critically about her many times before I ever got to actually talk to her as a person, as someone that's worked in media. And as someone that kind of knows the gaming space, the relationship between the gaming press and gamers, she really got treated as, uh, you know, here's an example of the worst person in the world, which was completely uncalled for. But unfortunately, that's that's kind of the world we live in. And you would think with more information, people would have more patience or they would try to seek out more sides of a story. But the weird thing is about the Internet age, despite more access to information than anyone could ever possibly want, people actually seem to process it a little bit less fairly, a little bit less critically. Um, but that's not just something I've noticed. I mean, anyone that works in media or even entertainment has noticed that this has been happening. But it puts creators, it puts reporters, journalists, influencers, anyone with an audience in a weird position where sometimes you might, you know, when you have to zig and you were supposed to zag, when you were supposed to tell the, the hard truth or something uncomfortable, but it was a lot easier just to say what people like to hear. Currently, the, the common advice is just go with what people want to hear. And while you can say, hey, Frost should never have said this about gamers, I think it should be open that, hey, if she really feels like this is an issue with her particular audience, you know, let her say it. Let people hear her out. 
even if it's something that you and I disagree, let people decide for themselves. But that's not where we're living in currently. Yeah, Peter Papisky, this gets back to where we started. And that's why I wanted to walk through a couple of the other things. First is criticism's too strong a word. But one of my takeaways from listening to that interview, and again, pretty neutral because I don't know all the parties involved. I'm not a huge gamer. I play a couple of games here and there. I don't really have a whole lot of time for it. Not my world, right? I just dabble in it when I'm mm-hmm. trying to cover it. It is also very clear to me that while she obviously feels the way she feels and she's entitled to, this is a great example of what we talked about. Here you have a content creator, and I don't—I mean that in a good way, content creator, that's what she is, a media personality that didn't understand the corporate side of the world that she was working in when you're working for a network, right? You're working in the corporate world and didn't understand the audience and the reaction that was going to come from that. Now, part of that, she touched on that she felt like she kind of got set up to fail here with the way it went down, and I think that's fair to point out here too. This goes to that communication thing. You got to know your audience and the corporate world and that audience, they're just not on the same wavelength a lot of the time. And stuff like this happens where those content creators more and more, I think they're going to end up getting caught in the middle when they try to dabble in the corporate world and still retain their audience. Corporate big companies, they see the big numbers. They want their piece of the pie, but they don't understand how the pie was baked, nor do they really care all that much. That was the giant mistake here. Frost, when I talked to her, here was one of the few. Well, she said a lot that was surprising. I actually feel quite, uh, not me as a person, but my opinion of her and understanding the story widened significantly. I almost makes me to the point where I feel bad because I feel like how I reported on her before, based on who I could talk to and the information I had, was uh, a bit too black and white. But uh, she kind of, like you said, got set up to fail. Comcast had decided to take that rant she made. Now, she thought, according to her own words, she had been asking to do, you know, these 15 hours times six amount of content every week. And so much of that was throwaway. And at that point, you're just on the, the content mill constantly. You're just trying to churn out as much content as you can get the, you know, the, uh, the organ monkey to grind. And so she, they said, hey, just, you know, you want to give this rant, talk about what you hate about in gaming as like kind of like a, a funny kind of sarcastic New Year's thing. She says, okay, sure. Now she thought in her head and they thought this is Mike going to be seen by like 2000 people max, right? So not very big for how much money was put into this thing. But people at Comcast, they thought that this was almost old style it was like any publicity is good publicity. And so that someone decided, I don't know if it was just marketing or if middle management was all, but someone decided that they would take this rant for this specific audience and blow it up as big as possible. Get as many people to see it, get as many people as mad, and then hope that somehow this would turn into usable attention for Comcast. You know, it's like the old the old Simpsons meme. You know, it's like step one, you know, make every, yeah, step one, blow this up, make everyone mad. Step two, question mark. Step three, everyone loves us. They didn't really have a plan for how to transform that somehow to everyone liking them. And so Frost kind of got put in this position where she was used as this uh, lightning rod for all this vitriol that came their way, for people's feelings about what happened to the brand at Comcast, for people's feelings about how people in the gaming press treat people in their audience, you know, and just for the the feelings about uh, influencers in general. And the ironic thing in all this is when I talked to Frost, she said, if they had asked me, I would have told them, no, do not post that. Do not post that. That is not a good idea. So Frost at some level did understand this was was a bad thing to do. But Comcast, the giant corporation with all the money in the world, all the top experts, whoever they want, they could pay for it. 
they did not seem to understand. And I think when influencers and news people try to work with these companies, they should realize that there is going to be an information gap that if we are not careful, that's probably unbridgeable for us. Yeah. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Peter Pisky joining us. One other topic on this I want to hit real quick here. I want to take up for content creators and influencers, I think, is a little different thing because I think that gets a little icky. But I want to take up for the content creators for a second because I is one. For people that don't know, when you're saying something like 15 times three content creation, I don't know that the general audience fully appreciates what that means. Like for me to put out an hour long show five times a week, that's five hours of content, but that's about eight or nine hours per hour of content I put out to produce that. Like there's a three to one ratio on prep work when I do stuff. That's not making it. That's not editing. That's just preparing for it. Just real quick, talk people through that. I I don't know that maybe the corporate folks understand. They think you just sit in front of a mic and talk. There's so much more involved in that. I do want to take up for the con- people that think that ain't work and content creation isn't work. No, it's not. A, you're not in a coal mine and you're not tarring a road, but it's a lot of hours and it's a lot of effort. 
Definitely. No, con that is a great point that people didn't really understand how that works. That definitely seemed very true, especially since so many people that were hired for Comcast Spectacore were people who had previously worked at Linear TV, especially for WWE Wrestling, oddly enough. And they did kind of have an older understanding of what it took to make content. But you are right. It is, you know, this is one thing I always get pushed back for when people ask, you know, what, what are the problems with journalism what are the problems of the media why does it seem different than it than it did before and one of the things i usually point out is like the vast majority of people who work in journalism are not millionaires okay these are people who if they're lucky in most markets will be able to get sixty thousand a year now people don't like to hear that what do you mean journalists journalists could be working class yeah in fact most of them are most of the people that you are influencing you that you hear from except for like the biggest of them they are in that situation where they're not making much more money than anyone else. And the work that's that's part of that, it is a lot of work. It's so much prep work. It's so much connection, trying to trying to get people to talk to you and to put together information. It's so much editing and production afterwards. And then, you know, you have the work of just trying to get it out to people, promotion. It is a lot of effort. And I think in some ways, I'd hope that because everyone now seems to be kind of stuck in the content creation mind, you know, that more people would understand how much effort goes to it. But it seems like content creators that aren't in journalism are some of the most vicious critics there are. I think maybe that might change with time because I, I feel like what's going to happen is that the journalism and those who are more just content creation influencers, I feel like those things are kind of sliding together they're slowly kind of morphing into one thing so that might change with time but currently despite you know like bigger audiences than ever and they're consuming all this information there doesn't seem to be more forgiveness no because human nature is still undefeated it's just we figured out a way to supercharge it and get rid of a lot of the filters which is something society that's society wise that's politics religion music whatever that's not just gaming that's just kind of part yeah. and parcel to the age we live in. Peter Pitsky, I love talking about this stuff with you because you have to explain it to me because I don't fully understand it. I'm glad you do it. People need to check out Culturescape. You do a great job with it along with all your other writing. Let folks know what you got going on. You're a good friend of the program. We love having you on. But until we get you on again, let them know how they can follow you, keep up with you and all these various things you've got going on, my friend. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm a little frazzled because I'm recovering from a, a medical trip, but I am doing more research on the G4 TV issue. I have some op-eds I'm currently putting together that hopefully will come out soon. I'm enjoying Hogwarts Legacy and, uh, you know, just hanging out, enjoying life, always looking for uh, the next uh, big story. You know, so if you ever want to say hi or, or you have a story to share, whatever, you know, you can always find me on Twitter at Happy Warrior P. And uh, of course, please look up the podcast Culturescape. We put that out uh, once a week. It's usually uh, uh, I just find someone I find interesting. I interview them. We talk about what they do. And then we just kind of leave it as it is. And I love that format because it feels like I get to talk about the things that I care about. The people I'm talking to, they get to share what they care about. And we just kind of leave it up to people to decide what to do with it. And I, I think that is the optimum way to go keep things honest keep things fair and i think if more of us would go in that direction and more the audience would accept that that is an ethical thing to do i have very positive feelings for the scope the arc of where media is heading but at the current place we are it is a little bit anarchic yeah, well, you do good work my friend even all the negative feedback with the with the frost interview even amongst that there was a lot of comments about how well you handled the interview so i'm glad you're getting the attention for that my friend we'll talk again very soon peter pitsky thank you sir 
Okay. No, thank you. Anytime. Yes, sir. think we handle those because i'm i'm always torn because both because i do we do the writing stuff like at ordinary times like well how do we cover these things but then at the same time you know practically what do you do with them because my first instinct with with wackadoos is you ignore them because everything you you know it's like you know it's like a grease fire anything you try to do to put it out you're just going to spread it because everything's publicity to these people um, what do you think we should do to handle them? Because we can't really ignore them because that doesn't work. You can't engage them because there's no good faith there that, you know, you're, it's silly putty nailed to the wall. You're not going to get anything productive out of engaging with them. So what do we do? Because, and again, like you said, we have a lot of examples on the right right now because they're really loud. Um, we're going to have a midterm election. We certainly are going to have probably bomb throwers on the left side of the because they're going to see that model and replicate it because it's a it's a good money making model. So we're going to get they already are. Yeah, this is going to be a self-perpetuating thing. How do we deal with this? How do you think we should approach it? You've been in Congress as an intern. You've seen it, although it was a bit of a different era. What do we do? Because I don't know. I don't. I'm just asking the question. I don't know the right way to handle these people because you can't engage them and you can't ignore them. So what do we do? The easy answer, not really not the easy answer, I think the main answer right now is I don't know. It, it's really hard to, as you said, it's hard, to, you can't really ignore them. And I don't know if you want to ignore them because some of what they says, say and do are, is rather dangerous and you have to speak out to them. But I think maybe part of the answer has to be politicians who are willing to kind of model a different way and to be um, a different kind of, of politician. And maybe who are able to kind of speak in ways that kind of can reach out um, of what it means to truly be a leader in, in, a, in our society, what it means to actually govern. Um, and hopefully that there are, are, are gonna be enough people um, out there that will listen and um, start to maybe demand more from their politicians and instead of just always electing um, these fools. But that's kind of what I have. But I, I, you know, it's, I really feel like sometimes we're at this crossroads in, in American society where the answers just don't come easy. And, and you know, I think sometimes we want to think that if, if it all someone says is or has some, some type of, of great saying or if they can say the right thing, everything will be solved. And, and I'm thinking right now, we're not in that era where we can just easily kind of solve this or at least put this crazy person in their, in their place because that crazy person is really backed up by the society, larger society. And um, I think we have to kind of sit with that and, and, and figure out what is the answer. Um, because I don't think it's that it's going to be that easy. I, 
would love to say that here's the answer that we can kind of combat the crazies, but I don't know. I, I really don't. We were kicking this around on the radio show a couple of days ago, and I, I, this is a really big thing. So, and but I just want to throw it to you because I just want your reaction to it. Is we were we were talking about? I think we're in a dispensation of time in America that we don't really understand because we've been so focused on post World War II America for the last seventy years, and we've kind of lived on the fumes of that in a lot of ways. And we see the societal unrest because you have minorities and people like that that are 20, 30 years behind that because of the civil rights movement and things is a lot of what we're seeing now. And I'm talking real big picture here, not just politics is a lot of what we're seeing in America now that with social media, with the technology, we're just having a reckoning of what we are as a people and because everybody has a voice and everybody has a face online now and everybody has an ability to amplify and interconnect that we're just having a long overdue reckoning of, hey, this really is a big, very diverse, very pluralistic society. And and there's a battle royale that's just got to be worked out because people are just for the first time, a lot of them realizing that, hey, there's most of the people in this world and in this country aren't like me at all. And there's millions of them. Is, is that kind of big picture? What's really going on here is just for the first time, people are having to deal with, oh, my little conclave that I grew up with. I'm in a I'm a global citizen now and people are having to try to work that out. And some of them aren't working it out real well. I think it is. I think we have been for a long time and, and the way our whole reality has been shaped up has been the post-war consensus. But, you know, the that consensus actually probably broke down in the eighties. Um, and I think we are living with those fumes, but, every, but and, the eighties were so good See, I, yeah. not to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but that's where no, I no. think that's where the breakdown is because we had the economic resurgence in the eighties. I, I think, and you know, I was a baby. I bar- I remember the late eighties cause I was born in 1980, but, but explain what you mean by that to folks that are maybe younger or just haven't thought of it that way, because people think of the eighties as a really good time in America how can that be where the breakdown occurred? Because things were good in the eighties. We had, you know, pop culture explosion and MTV explain what you mean by that, because it runs counter to what a lot of people think that time was. So explain that a little bit, if you would, please. Sir. Well, yeah. And I think I probably would want to even back up a little bit more is that a lot of people like economists and some politicians and, and um, other experts would say that, the the post-war consensus that was made after World War II, some of both economically and, and politically, probably ended around the mid-70s. So between like 1973 to 1975. So when you and we know what happened me, right around that time. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um and you know I don't really remember that time much because at that time I was um a kid and it was I was born in six, 1969 so I don't remember the, the the consensus and we all know what happened with the 70s economically and all of that um the 80s I think the reason sometimes we remember it so fondly is that things did get better and I think sometimes even though it got better that doesn't mean that the the consensus hadn't you know that things weren't changing um that i think the economy was still kind of 
changing over. There was still lots of movement of what things were happening. You know, if you lived in Michigan in the 1980s, it was a mess because the auto industry was changing. We were dealing with competition from Japan, but we were also dealing with technology and that you didn't need as many people to make um, cars and all of that. So though there were things that are happening, even though the, I think the, the wider economy was, were, was doing rather well, um, there were parts of it where things were changing. That was also you know, the rise of, of, I think, the tech industry um, becoming uh, greater. So you know, even in those times of change and, and even in the times when, when a consensus has ended, there are gonna be good points. I think that there are gonna be times where things go well. Um, and I think that that went into the 90s um, as the economy was still going strong. It was probably even better than it was in the 80s um, where it kind of faltered and where we started to have problems, I would say is probably around the year 2000 politically, because of course that was the year of that election. And then I think that caught up then in 2008 with um, the economic problems and the crash of the market and all of that. Those two things together, I think, really just kind of shattered any illusion that things were still going well. I mean, there was already a lot of change. Like I said, there was been a lot of change going in the 80s and 90s, but it, no one really noticed it as much because the economy was doing so well. When the economy wasn't doing as well, and then also when Washington wasn't doing as well, that's when we started to see things happening. Top that off with the fact that our society was changing. Um, we have, I think, for a long time, especially during the post-war consensus, World War II consensus, to put this probably in the most crudest way possible, we still thought of ourselves as a mostly white nation. That has been changing dramatically um, over the last 40, 50 years. Uh, immigration and, and other things have changed in that we are much more diverse than we ever have been. And that's gonna bring up, bring up a lot of questions and a lot of, of friction. Um, you know, this is why I think why we have this whole thing about the 1619 project when, and all the kind of craziness on that is that we're all trying to figure out, okay, so now we have this country and what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to live in America? What does it mean that we are a democracy, but yet we also have this horrible history of slavery or, or how we treated Native Americans? And so we're all trying to deal with all of those issues, some actually most not very well, um, and so I think a lot of what we're seeing is, I think you are correct, that we're heading into something new. And I think we're all nervous about it. And to talk about social media for a second, you, um, I don't know if you've read or heard, heard much from Martin Gurry, um, who talks a little bit about you know, how the media was once, that there were kind of gatekeepers um, in the media. And of course, you only had at one time three networks and all of this stuff. And, you know, with social media, now anyone can say anything. And 
there are people who don't like that. They wish that we could go back to what it was, but that horse is out of the barn and into the next county and down the valley and into the next state. I mean, it's, it's just gone. There, I don't think we can go back to what we once were. I think we have to figure out what it means to live now in this era of social media. And, and instead of trying to long for some day that it is just not coming back. it's something else too and not to get overly poetic about it you know i love my country i'm i i'm very open about you know what i think about america i think i think my bona fides are a patriot are pretty well established at this point for a lot of reasons i I love my country part of this that we're talking about is understanding that i love my country other people also love our country but they love it differently and they express mm-hmm. that love differently and they got there differently and almost like a family relationship, not to beat a metaphor to death, but their relationship with the country has different baggage than mine. And they mm-hmm. have different experiences with their country than I do. And it's, and unless you're just going to really do a deep dive into history, which granted guilty because I'm, you know, a history guy at heart. And my dad was a history teacher and made sure I knew all that stuff. Um, a lot of people just don't have, maybe they've never taken the time to understand that, hey, they can still love this thing that I love. They're just loving it differently and they're loving it from a different point of view. But mm-hmm. that's that's some that's not just advanced citizenship, which America demands of us. That's advanced adulting. And yes, I don't think it's something we can really teach. I don't think you can. You certainly can't legislate it. You're not going to make people do it. But I think it's a modeled behavior and a and an advocacy thing where we just have to keep pushing people to go like, hey, you part of one of the great freedoms in America is the freedom to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's OK if their view of our country is different. And it does, even if they're critical of the country, that doesn't that's something I've had to mature and kind of grow up about is like just because they're critical of the country and I love my country doesn't mean they don't love their country. A lot of them are critical because they care so dang much about it it's coming off as anger and it's coming off as frustration and they want things to be better. This isn't just a political thing. This is, this is adulting. This is grown, you know, it's in my family, this is grown folk stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's just not enough people at the grown folk table to talk about this right now because people keep coming with mess and getting sent to the kids table. I don't know what kind of your family you grew up in, but that's how it works. You know, grown folk talk at the grown folk table. That's a privilege, not a right. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that those are the things that we just don't have a good way of dealing with right now of, hey, this is the advanced adult citizenship we need to work on to maintain being a great country. And I think maybe we're in some growing pains or maybe even maybe birthing pains because we're still a young country. Maybe this is just the birthing pains of making a, a great society that's going to last more than two or 300 years. If you're going to have that thousand year thing that a lot of countries and societies and cultures are this is the process is that is that maybe part of it is like we just don't have a maturity to it i think it is there i'm reminded and i'm probably going to butcher this but it's a a quote by james baldwin 
that says, you know, I love my country and I love it, I love it enough that I'm, I'm willing to criticize it. And I think for myself, being African-American, and, and I think that this is something that I've, I've realized, I think, for most African-Americans is that we have, a, have to live with it in a way with a duality. And the duality is, is that we love our country. I mean, there's a reason that Martin Luther King spoke and used the words of the founding fathers and, and the Declaration of Independence, because this is who we are. We are Americans. That's why we're fighting for, all, for civil rights. But you also know the past. I, I, mean, I know my father growing up in Jim Crow, Louisiana. I know that I have, you know, my ancestors were slaves. So you know that history and you know how we have been treated in the past. And, and you know, to be honest, that we're still kind of dealing with some of those issues today, even though I think it's, it's much better um, than what it was. And I think that for people, especially I think for, for white Americans and for, there has been a certain view of America that has almost been perfect, um, that we haven't had any real big issues and, and issues have all been solved. And, and I think that's kind of one of, the, one of the things that are getting into the whole like critical race theory stuff. Um, and I say this knowing that there are things you can be critical about critical race theory, but I think a lot of it is this fear of hearing about things about America that aren't always so great, that we, are, we weren't always the guys with the white hats. Um, and so there's this fear that if I have to see something critical about America, then that means I hate America. And that is not the case. Um, this is a big, diverse, and I will also say complex country. But I think for all of it, I think we're a good country. But good does not mean perfect. Good just means good. And I think, you know, part of that maturity will come from being willing to kind of understand our past, um, understanding some of the, the parts of our present that need to be corrected, um, and yet understanding that there are still things that are good about this country. Um, now, I, I probably should add on the other side of that, because there are people I've been kind of basically talking from the right, from the left of saying there you can have people doing things that are bad and they can still also be good people. Um, that happens, too. And we have to, I think, admit there are also good things about this country. Um, personally, I think, you know, the fact that this country barely 50 years after the civil rights movement was able to elect a black man to become president twice says something about us. Um, I think that that's something that we need to also take to heart as well. And so I think it, it, there's a kind of maturity that has to come from, I think, both sides of the aisle of, of being willing to deal with the good and the bad and not kind of have this whatever kind of avatarish view of America. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from DC and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.